Chapter Twelve of the Armorer's Prentices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Armorer's Prentices by Charlotte Mary Young. Chapter Twelve. A King in a Quagmire. For my pastimes, hunt, sing, and dance. My heart is set all godly sport to my comfort who shall me let the king's ballad attributed to henry the eighth life was a rough hardy thing in the early sixteenth century strangely divided between thought and folly hardship and splendor misery and merriment toil and sport the youths in the armorer's household had experienced little of this as yet in their country life but in london they could not but soon begin to taste both sides of the matter master headley himself was a good deal taken up with city affairs and left the details of his business to tibble steelman and kit smallbones though he might always appear on the scene and he had a wonderful knowledge of what was going on the breaking in and training of the two new country lads was left entirely to them and to edmund burgess giles soon found that complaints were of no avail and only made matters harder for him, and that Tibble Steelman and Kit Smallbones had no notion of favoring their master's cousin. Poor fellow, he was very miserable in those first weeks. The actual toil, to which he was an absolute novice, though nominally three years an apprentice, made his hands raw, and his joints full of aches, while his groans met with nothing but laughter, and he recognized, with great displeasure, that more was laid on him than on Stephen Birkenholt. This was partly in consideration of Stephen's youth, partly of his ready zeal and cheerfulness. His hands might be sore, too, but he was rather proud of it than otherwise, and his hero-worship of Kit Smallbones made him run on errands, tug at the bellows staff, or fetch whatever was called for with a bright alacrity that won foreman's hearts, and it was noted that he, who was really a gentleman, had none of the airs that Giles Headley showed. Giles began by some amount of bullying, by way of slaking his wrath at the preference shown for one whom he continued to style a beggarly brat picked up on the heath. But Stephen was good-humoured and accustomed to give and take, and they both found their level, as well in the dragon court as among the world outside, where the London prentices were a strong and redoubtable body was rude not to say cruel rites of initiation among themselves plenty of rivalries and enmities between house and house guild and guild a united not to say ferocious esprit de corps against every one else fisticuffs and wrestlings were the amenities that passed between them though always with a love of fair play so long as no cowardice or what was looked on as such was shown for there was no mercy for the weak or weakly such had better betake themselves at once to the cloister, or life was made intolerable by constant jeers, blows, baitings, and huntings, often, it must be owned, absolutely brutal. Stephen and Giles had, however, passed through this ordeal. The letter to John Birkenholt had been dispatched by a trusty clerk, riding with the judges of assize, whom Mistress Perronel knew might be safely trusted, 
and who actually brought back a letter which might have emanated from the most affectionate of brothers giving his authority for binding stephen apprentice to the worshipful master giles headley and sending the remainder of the boy's portion stephen was thereupon regularly bound apprentice to master headley it was a solemn affair which took place in the armourer's hall in coleman street before sundry witnesses harry randall in his soberest garb and demeanour acted as guardian to his nephew and presented him clad in the regulation prentice garb flat round cap close-cut hair narrow falling bands coarse side coat close hose cloth stockings coat with the badge of the armourer's company and master headley's own dragon tail on the sleeve to which was added a blue cloak marked in like manner the instructions to apprentices were rehearsed beginning ye shall constantly and devoutly on your knees every day serve god morning and evening pledging him to avoid evil company to make speedy return when sent on his master's business to be fair gentle and lowly in speech and carriage with all men and the like mutual promises were interchanged between him and his master stephen on his knees the indentures were signed for quips and how could with much ado produce an autograph signature though his penmanship went no further and the occasion was celebrated by a great dinner of the whole craft of the armourer's hall to which the principal craftsmen who had been apprentices such as tibble steelman and kit smallbones were invited sitting at a lower table while the masters had the higher one on the dais and a third was reserved for the apprentices after they should have waited on their masters in fact it was an imitation of the orders of chivalry knights squires and pages and the gradation of rank was as strictly observed as by the nobility giles considering the feast to be entirely in his honour though the transfer of his indentures had been made at salisbury endeavoured to come out in some of his bravery but was admonished that such presumption might be punished the first time at his master's discretion the second time by whipping at the hall of his company and the third time by six months being added to the term of his apprenticeship master randall was entertained in the place of honour where he comported himself with great gravity though he could not resist alarming stephen with an occasional wink or gesture as the boy approached in the course of the duties of waiting at the upper board a splendid sight with cups and flagons of gold and silver with venison and capon and all that a city banquet could command before the invention of the turtle there was a drinking of toasts and among the foremost was that of wolsey who had freshly received his nomination of cardinal and whose hat was on its way from rome and here the jester could not help betraying his knowledge of the domestic policy of the household and telling the company how it had become known that the scarlet hat was actually on the way but in a varlet's budget a mere italian common knave no better than myself quoth quip somehow whereat his nephew trembled standing behind his chair forgetting that the decorous solid man in the sad-coloured gown and well-crimped ruff neatest of perronel's performances was no such base comparison for any varlet hal went on to describe however how my lord of york had instantly sent off to stay the messenger on his landing at dover and equip him with all manner of costly silks by way of apparel and with attendants such as might do justice to his freight 
"'That so,' he said. "'Men may not rate it as a scarlet coxcomb, since all men be but fools, and the sole question is, who among them hath wit enough to live by his folly?' Therewith he gave a wink that so disconcerted Stephen, as nearly to cause an upset of the bowl of perfumed water that he was bringing for the washing of hands. Master Headley, however, suspected nothing, and invited the grave Master Randall to attend the domestic festival on the presentation of poor Spring's effigy at the shrine of St. Julian. This was to take place early in the morning of the 14th of September, Holy Cross Day, the last holiday of the year that had any glory of summer about it, and on which the apprentices claimed a prescriptive right to go out netting in St. John's Wood and to carry home their spoil to the lasses of their acquaintance. Tibble Steelman had completed the figure in bronze, with a silver collar and chain, not quite without protest that the sum had better have been bestowed in alms. But from his master's point of view, this would have been giving to a pack of lying beggars and thieves what was due to the holy saint. No one, save Tibble, who could do and say what he chose, could have ventured on a word of remonstrance on such a subject, and as the full tide of enclosclasm, consequent upon the discovery of the original wording of the second commandment, had not yet set in, Tibble had no more conscientious scruple against making the figure than in moulding a little straight-tailed lion for Lord Harry Percy's helmet. So the party, in early morning, heard their mass, and then, repairing to St. Julian's Pillar, while the rising sun came peeping through the low eastern window of the vaulted church of St. Faith. Master Headley, on his knees, gave thanks for his preservation, and then put forward his little daughter, holding on her joined hands the figure of four spring, couchant and beautifully modelled in bronze, with all Tibble's best skill. Hal Randall and Ambrose had both come up from the little home where Perinel presided, for the hour was too early for the jester's absence to be remarked in the luxurious household of the cardinal-elect, and he even came to break his fast afterwards at the dragon court, and held such interesting discourse with old Dame Headley on the farthingales and coifs of Queen Catherine and her ladies, that she pronounced him a man wondrous wise and understanding, and declared Stephen happy in possession of such a kinsman. "'And whither away now, youngsters?' he said, as he rose from table. "'To St. John's Wood, the good greenwood, uncle,' said Ambrose. "'Thou too, Ambrose?' said Stephen joyfully. "'For once, away from thy ink and thy books.' "'Aye,' said Ambrose, "'mine heart warms to the woodlands once more. "'Uncle, would that thou couldst come.' "'Would that I could, boy. "'We three would show these lads of cocaine "'what three foresters know of woodcraft. "'But it may not be.' Were I once there, the old blood might stir again, and I might bring you into trouble. And ye have not two faces under one hood as I have. So fare ye well. I wish ye many a bagful of nuts. The four months of city life, albeit the city was little bigger than our moderate-sized country towns, and far from being an unbroken mass of houses, had yet made the two young foresters delighted to enjoy a day of thorough country in one another's society. Little Dennet longed to go with them, but the prentice world was far too rude for little maidens to be trusted in it, and her father held out hopes of going one of these days to High Park, as he called it, while Edmund and Stephen promised her all their nuts, and as many blackberries as could be held in their flat caps. 
giles has promised me none said dinner with a pouting lip nor ambrose why sure little mistress thou'lt have enough to crack thy teeth on said edmund burgess they ought to bring theirs to me returned the little heiress of the dragon court with an air of offended dignity that might have suited the heiress of the kingdom giles who looked on dinner as a kind of needful appendage to the dragon a piece of property of his own about whom he need take no trouble merely laughed and said want must be thy master then but ambrose treated her petulance in another fashion look here pretty mistress he said there dwells by me a poor little maid nigh about thine age who never goeth out further than st paul's minster nor plucketh a flower nor hath a sweet cake nor manship bread nor sugar stick nay and never saw english hazelnut nor blackberry tis for her that i want to gather them is she thy master's daughter demanded dinnet who could admit the claims of another princess nay my master hath no children but she dwelleth near him i will send her some and likewise of mine own comfits and cakes said mistress dinnet only thou must bring all to me first ambrose laughed and said it's a bargain then little mistress i keep my word returned dinnet marching away while ambrose obeyed a summons from good-natured mistress headley to have his wallet filled with bread and cheese like those of her own prentices off went the lads under the guidance of edmund burgess meeting parties of their own kind at every turn soon leaving behind them the city bounds as they passed under newgate and by and by skirting the fields of the great carthusian monastery or charter house with the burial ground given by sir walter manny at the time of the black death beyond came marshy ground through which they had to pick their way carefully over stepping stones this being no other than what is now the regent's park not yet in any degree drained by the new river but all quaking ground overgrown with rough grass and marsh plants through which stephen and ambrose bounded by the help of stout poles with feet and eyes well used to bogs and knowing where to look for safe footing while many a flat-capped london lad floundered about and sank over his yellow ankles or left his shoes behind him while laugh-wings shrieked pee-weet and almost flapped him with their broad wings and moor-hens dived in the dark pools and wild ducks rose in long families stephen was able to turn the laugh against his chief adversary and rival george bates of the eagle who proposed seeking for the lapwing's nest in hopes of a dainty dish of plover's eggs being too great a cockney to remember that in september the contents of the eggs were probably flying over the heather as well able to shift for themselves as their parents above all things the london prentices were pugnacious but as every one joined in the laugh against george and he was beside stuck fast on a quaking tussock of grass afraid to proceed or advance he could not have his revenge and when the slough was passed and the slight rise leading to the copse of st john's wood was attained behold it was found to be in possession of the lower sort of lads the blackguard as they were called they were of course quite as ready to fight with the prentices as the prentices were with them and a battle royal took place all along the front of the hazel bushes in which stephen of the dragon and george of the eagle fought side by side sticks and fists were the weapons and there were no very severe casualties before the prentices 
being the larger number as well as the stouter and better fed had routed their adversaries and driven them off towards harrow there was a crackling of boughs and filling of bags and cracking of nuts and wild cries in pursuit of a startled hare or rabbit and though ambrose and stephen indignantly repelled the idea of st john's wood being named in the same day with their native forest it is doubtful whether they had ever enjoyed themselves more until just as they were about to turn homeward whether moved by his hostility to stephen or by envy at the capful of juicy blackberries carefully covered with green leaves george bates rushing up from behind shouted out here's a skulker here's one of the blackguard off to thy fellows varlet at the same time dealing a dexterous blow under the cap which sent the blackberries up into ambrose's face ha ha shouted the ill-conditioned fellow so much for a knaves it serves rascally strangers here hand over that bag of nuts ambrose was no fighter but in the defence of the bag that was to purchase a treat for little aldonza he clenched his fists and bade george bates come and take them if he would the quiet scholarly boy however was no match for the young armourer and made but poor reply to the buffets of his adversary who had hold of the bag and was nearly choking him with the string round his neck however stephen had already missed his brother and turning round shouted out that the villain bates was mauling him and rushed back falling on ambrose's assailant with a sudden well-directed pounding that made him hastily turn about with cries of two against one not at all said stephen stand by ambrose i'll give the coward his deserts in fact though the boys were nearly of a size george somewhat the biggest stephen's country activity and perhaps the higher spirit of his gentle blood generally gave him the advantage and on this occasion he soon reduced bates to roar for mercy thou must purchase it said stephen thy bag of nuts in return for the berries thou hast wasted peaceable ambrose would have remonstrated but stephen was implacable he cut the string and captured the bag then with a parting kick bade bates go after his comrades for his eagle was not but a thieving kite bates made off pretty quickly but the two brothers tarried a little to see how much damage the blackberries had suffered and to repair the losses they descended into the bog by gathering some choice dewberries i marvel these fine fellows escaped our company said stephen presently are we in the right track thinkst thou here's a pool i had not marked before said ambrose anxiously nay we can't be far astray while we see the st paul's spire and the tower full before us said stephen plainer marks than we had at home that may be only where is the safe footing said ambrose i wish we had not lost sight of the others pish what good are a pack of city lovers returned stephen don't we know a quagmire when we see one better than they do hark they are shouting for us not they that's a falconer's call there's another whistle see there's the hawk she's going down the wind as i'm alive and stephen began to bound wildly along making all the sounds and calls by which falcons were recalled and holding up as a lure a lapwing which he had knocked down ambrose by no means so confident in bog-trotting as his brother stood still to await him hearing the calls and shouts of the falconer coming nearer and presently seeing a figure flying by the help of a pole over the pools and dikes that here made some attempt at draining the waste suddenly in mid-career over one of these broad ditches there was a collapse and a lusty shout for help as the form disappeared 
Ambrose instantly perceived what had happened. The leaping pole had broken to the downfall of the owner. Forgetting all his doubts as to bog-holes and morasses, he grasped his own pole and sprang from tussock to tussock till he had reached the bank of the ditch or watercourse in which the unfortunate sportsman was floundering. He was a large, powerful man, but this was of no avail, for the slough afforded no foothold. The further side was a steep, built up of sods. The nearer sloped down gradually, and though it was apparently not very deep, the efforts of the victim to struggle out had done nothing but churn up a mass of black, muddy water, in which he sank deeper every moment, and it was already nearly to his shoulders, when, with a cry of joy, half choked by the mud, however, he cried, "'Ha! Ah, my good lad, are there any more of you?' "'Not nigh, I fear,' said Ambrose, beholding with some dismay the breadth of the shoulders, which were all that appeared above the turbid water. "'So, lie down, boy, behind that bunch of oysier. Hold out thy pole. Let me see thine hands. Thou art but a straw, but our lady be my speed. Now hangs England on a pair of wrists.' There was a great struggle, an absolute effort for life, and but for the oysier clump, Ambrose would certainly have been dragged into the water. When the man had worked along the pole, and grasping his hands, pulled himself upward. Happily, the sides of the dike became harder, higher up, and did not instantly yield to the pressure of his knees. And by the time Ambrose's hands and shoulders felt nearly wrenched from their sockets, the stem of the oysier had been obtained, and in another minute the rescued man, bareheaded, plastered with mud, and streaming with water, sat by him on the bank, panting, gasping, and trying to gather breath and clear his throat from the mud he had swallowed. "'Thanks, lad. <clears throat> well done,' he articulated. "'Those fellows, where are they?' And feeling in his bosom, he brought out a gold whistle, suspended by a chain. <clears throat> "'Blow it,' he said, taking off the chain. "'My mouth is too full of slime.' Ambrose blew a loud, shrill call, but it seemed to reach no one but Stephen whom he presently saw dashing towards them. "'Here is my brother coming, sir,' he said, as he gave up his endeavours to help the stranger free himself from the mud that clung to him, and which was, in some places, thick enough to be scraped off with a knife. He kept up a continual interchange of exclamations at his plight, whistles and shouts for his people, and imprecations on their tardiness, until Stephen was near enough to show that the hawk had been recovered, and then he joyfully cried out, "'Ha! Hast got her! Why, blackcaps as ye are, you put all my fellows to shame! "'How now, thou errant bird! Dost thou know thy master, or take him for a mud-wall? "'Kite that thou art to have led me such a dance! "'And what's your name, my brave lads? Ye must have been bred to woodcraft!' Ambrose explained both their parentage and their present occupation, but was apparently heeded but little. "'What ye how to get out of this quagmire?' was the question. "'I never was here before, sir,' said Stephen. "'But yonder lies the tower, and if we keep along by this dyke, it must lead us out somewhere.' "'Well said, boy. I must be moving, or the mud will dry on me, and I shall stand here as though I were turned to stone by the gorgon's head. So have with thee. Go on first, Master Hawk-teamer. What will bear thee will bear me.' There was an imperative tone about him that surprised the brothers, and Ambrose, looking at him from head to foot, felt sure that it was some great man, at the least, whom it had been his hap to rescue. Indeed, he began to have further suspicions, when they came to a pool of clearer water, beyond which was firmer ground, and the stranger, 
with an exclamation of joy, borrowed Stephen's cap, and, scooping up the water with it, washed his face and head, disclosing the golden hair and beard, fair complexion, and handsome square face he had seen more than once before. He whispered to Stephen, "'Tis the king!' "'Ha-ha!' laughed Henry. "'Hast thou found him out, lads? "'Well, it may not be the worse for ye. "'Pity thou shouldst not be in the forest still, my young falconer. "'But we know our good city of London to well break thy indentures. "'And thou!' "'He was turning to Ambrose when further shouts were heard. "'The king hallooed, and bade the boys do so, "'and in a few moments more they were surrounded by the rest of the hawking party. "'Full of dismay at the king's condition, "'and deprecating his anger for having lost him, "'Yea,' said Henry, "'and had it not been for this good lad, "'ye should never more have heard of the majesty of England. "'Swallowed in a quagmire had made a new inn for a king, "'and ye would have had to brook the little scock.' "'The gentlemen who had come up were profuse in lamentations. "'A horse was brought up for the king's use, "'and he prepared to mount, "'being in haste to get into dry clothes. "'He turned round, however, to the boys, and said, "'I'll not forget you, my lads. "'Keep that.' he added, as Ambrose, on his knee, would have given back the whistle. "'Tis a token that maybe will serve thee, for I shall know it again. And now, my black-eyed lad, my purse, Howard.' He handed the purse to Stephen, a velvet bag richly wrought with gold, and containing ten gold angels, besides smaller money, bidding them divide, like good brothers as he saw they were, and then galloped off with his train. Twilight was coming on, but following the direction of the riders, the boys were soon on the Islington Road. The new gate was shut by the time they reached it, and their explanation that they were belated after a netting expedition would not have served them, had not Stephen produced the sum of twopence, which softened the surliness of the guard. It was already dark, and though curfew had not yet sounded, preparations were making for lighting the watchfires in the open spaces, and throwing chains across the streets. But the little door in the dragon court was open, and Ambrose went in with his brother to deliver up his nuts to Dennet and claim her promise of sending a share to Aldonza. They found their uncle in his sober array, sitting by Master Headley, who was rating Edmund and Giles for having lost sight of them, the latter excusing himself by grumbling out that he could not be marking all Stephen's brawls with George Bates. When the two wanderers appeared, relief took the form of anger and there were sharp demands why they had loitered. Their story was listened to with many exclamations. Dennet jumped for joy. Her grandmother advised that the angels should be consigned to her own safekeeping, and when Mr. Headley heard of Henry's scruples about the indentures, he declared that it was a rare wise king who knew an honest craft was better than court favor. "'Yet mayhap he might do something for thee, friend Ambrose,' added the armor. Commend thee to some post in his chapel royal, or put thee into some college, since such is thy turn. How sayest thou, Master Randall? Shall he send in the same token, and make his petition? If a, fo uh, if a plain man may be heard where the wise hath spoken, said Randall, he had best abstain. Kings live not to be reminded of mishaps, and our house humour is not to be reckoned on. Lay up the toy in case of need, but an thou claim overmuch, he may mind thee in a fashion not to thy taste. Sure, our king is of a more generous mould, exclaimed Mrs. Headley. He is like other men, good mistress, just as you know how to have him, 
and he is scarce like to be willing to be minded of the taste of mire, or of floundering like a hog in a salt marsh. Ha ha! And Quip somehow went off into such a laugh as might have betrayed his identity to any one more accustomed to the grimaces of his professional character, but which only infected the others with the same contagious merriment. Come thou home now, he said to Ambrose. My good woman hath been in a mortal fright about thee, and would have me come out to seek thee. Such are the women folk, Master Headley. Let them have but a lad to look after, and they'll bleat after him like an old ewe that has lost her lamb. Ambrose only stayed for dinner to divide the spoil, and though the blackberries had been lost or crushed, the little maiden kept her promise generously, and filled the bag not only with nuts, but with three red-cheeked apples and a handful of comfits for the poor little maid who never tasted fruit or sweets. End of chapter 12